morning. Good morning to our viewers online as well. So I want to reiterate this weekend is Connect Weekend, which means the Fall Grow Guide is out. Um, and if you didn't get one of these, you can pick one of these up before you leave out, out in the gathering space. Uh, this is when we encourage you all to uh, sign up for a small group or a, a class for this fall semester. Um, all of our fall groups and classes are in there. They're also on our website and they're also on our app. Uh, I counted 23 groups and classes uh, being offered this fall. So there are several new things this semester. There's, uh, there's Alpha in there. There's uh, Managing Our Finances God's Way. There's a monthly mom's gathering that's going to be happening on Saturday mornings. Uh, there's a new recovery small group for women and a whole bunch more. So I encourage you to check that out. Also, if you have not taken Life Church 101, uh, we're offering that this afternoon from 1 to 4. I mean, you can just show up if you want. We printed some extra manuals just in case. 101 is our membership class. It's also the first step in getting connected and growing around here. So whether you are new or you've been attending like since 1978 when the church was founded, uh, I would encourage you to come, meet the pastors, learn about the church, and then hear about where we're going as a church. So we offer 101s quarterly. The next one will be offered in October uh, but if you want to take the 201 class that's coming up in September uh, and you haven't had 101, you'll want to take the 101 that's this afternoon. In 201, uh, we go in more in depth. We do a life map. We do a shape assessment, which is like spiritual gifts, heart, abilities, personality, and experience. Uh, we do a spiritual growth assessment. And then after the class, each person will meet one-on-one -on -one with a pastor to discover, figure out what your next steps are. So that's my little plug for getting connected and growing at Life Church. That's really, really important. Okay, so today we're continuing our message series on the Psalms. Uh, we, we have this week and one more in the Psalms. And then the following week, September 11th, uh, we'll be launching a new nine-week series on the book of Ruth called Ruth, A Story of Chesed Love. Chesed is a powerful and beautiful Hebrew word that we will be unpacking uh, over the course of that series. So you will learn how to pronounce chesed. <laughs> All right, so today's psalm is another famous one. Uh, written by King David, Psalm 19. The theme of this psalm is the revelation of the glory of God and how it leads us into authentic worship. C.S. Lewis said this about this psalm. He said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. The British theologian Peter C. Craigie said, this psalm combines the most beautiful poetry with some of the most profound biblical theology. So Psalm 19 is divided into three sections. Uh, verses 1 through 6 is God's revealing of himself through creation. 
verses 7 through 11, is God revealing himself through his word. And then it ends with uh, how we should respond to that revelation through and with authentic worship. Verses 12 and 12 through 14. Now, it's important for us to have an understanding of the historical and the cultural context in which scripture is written. Um, So here's an important backdrop to this particular psalm. Um, Psalm 19 was written by David towards the end of his life, uh, around 1015 BC. It was written, of course, in the ancient Near East, um, where many of the dominant cultures worshiped the sun the sun like in the sky. So we see a reference to the place the sun had in the mindset of the people of this day in verse six of this psalm. It says, the sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. So the sun was regarded by many cultures in the ancient Near East um, as the sovereign celestial body like the ruler of the day. Um, The belief was that the sun had authority and had dominion over the heavens. Um, That phrase, nothing can hide from its heat, refers not only to the sun's dominion over the sky, uh, but it's probably also a reference to the widespread belief in the ancient Near East of the sun being this like all-seeing, all-knowing, like all-revealing God of justice. So that's the backdrop for this psalm. And we can see that this psalm puts forth an entirely different theological understanding, um, different from the sun having dominion over the sky. That there's someone beyond the sun, beyond creation, who is to be praised. Um, that even creation itself praises this entity that is beyond itself. Now, this idea would have been at the time very countercultural. Um, that though the sun has dominion over the heavens, God has dominion over the sun and the heavens themselves. And that God's dominion surpasses our understanding. So in the first six verses of this psalm, we see God revealing himself through and revealing his authority over the cosmos. Verse one says, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. So theologians call this general revelation. Um, General revelation means that God has revealed himself to everyone simply by creating the universe and everything that's in it. We see aspects of his attributes, we see aspects of his character simply by observing creation. Um, We can observe his grandeur, right? As we look at the planets and the stars and the galaxies, We get a glimpse of the complexity of his thoughts, right? As we study mathematics, physics, quantum mechanics. We begin to get a sense of his 
creativity. Um, by realizing the diversity of species that populate our planet. I looked it up. National Geographic states that there are 8.7 million different species on this planet. That's a lot of creativity. We can get a sense of his beauty just by watching a sunset where the clouds are like parting um, over a red and orange tapestry in the sky. Or by seeing a full moon just hovering over the water at night. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. In this psalm, David tells us that each day is a mini-sermon. The world itself is continually pouring out revelation of who God is. Verse 2 says this. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. Every day the universe continues to um, give out unceasing praise to God simply by continuing to exist. The world is telling us something. The universe all over the place is pointing to its creator, God himself. David says this in verses three and four. He says, they speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Everyone can hear the voice of the creator testifying through his creation. Even though some people choose to ignore this, right? They, they drown it out. The message is there. It's all around us. All of creation, from the, from the micro to the macro, from the tiniest beautiful flower to the Hubble telescope's images of our galaxy. Um, all of creation is singing a message in unison, glory to God. God doesn't just reveal himself through his creation. He also speaks to us with words. And whereas God revealing himself through creation uh, is referred to as general revelation, God revealing himself through his word through the Bible, is called special revelation. So the next three verses of Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9, um, there are a series of parallel statements describing and celebrating God's word. Verse 7 says this, The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The word of God actually brings life to our soul. There might be times when we're depressed, when we're sad, maybe we're even numb. But when we take in God's word, it has the power to restore us, to revive us. The word of God brings life to our dry bones. It can revive those who are dead in sin, and it has the power to bring true life. Maybe you're in a dark place. You're listening to this right now, and you are in a dark place. Maybe 
You've even done stuff that you're not proud of. Maybe you're racked with guilt or shame or despair. And frankly, if you're honest, like if you're really, really honest, the last thing you want to do is read the Bible. But in the words of Nike, just do it. Open the word of God, read it, and it will revive your soul. Particularly the words of Jesus. Um, His very words have the power to revive our souls. Maybe start with the Gospel of John. All right, verse 8 says this. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. So as we read Scripture, uh, we not only begin to see who God is, we begin to see who we really are. God's words begin to bring us joy. We begin to delight in his truth. We begin to know and we begin to have some kind of understanding of the one who is the source of life and love. The one who loves us more than anyone else in this whole world. Our eyes begin to be opened. Sure, at first, when we're interacting with God's word, um, we begin to see our own brokenness, our own sin. But then we begin to see that that is not who we are. That's not who God created us to be. We begin to see that we were created and that we were meant for glory. Verse 9 says this, Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. So the word of God is pure. It is without error. It is infallible. Um, The word of God never changes, and it will endure forever. If you're like most people, uh, your view when you start reading the Bible is that it's just like this list of do's and don'ts. Or you have a hard time, like, seeing how these stories all fit together. But the more we come to read the Bible, the more we come to study it, the more we come to cherish it, uh, we begin to see the grand sweeping story of God's love for us, and it changes us. The magazine Christianity Today ran an article in 2002 called, I Was a Witch. It's the story of Kimberly Shoemate and her long conversion to Christ. This is what um, she said about the power of God's word in her life. All the Old Testament and New Testament verses had one oddly familiar voice, one tone, one heart. I wondered, how could a book written by so many different people over the course of hundreds of years fit together perfectly as if one amazing storyteller had written the whole thing? The Holy Spirit began melting my vanity and arrogance with a power stronger than any hex, incantation, 
or spell I'd ever used. Suddenly the blindfold I'd worn for almost 30 years was stripped away and instantly I knew what I'd been searching for, Jesus. The same God I'd neglected, whose name I'd used as profanity, whom I'd flat out rejected, was the one who'd sent his son to suffer for me, to take the guilty verdict so I could be found innocent. My eyes filled with tears as I exchanged the darkness with which I'd grown so accustomed for the light of God's truth. The word of God is pure, it is true, and it will last forever. And it has the power to save. Verses 10 and 11 say this. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. So David says the word of God is like the finest gold and like the sweetest honey. Those are interesting metaphors. Uh, One symbol is monetary. The other symbol is nutritional. One brings a sense of eternal or external security, external security. The other one brings a sense of internal satisfaction. The word of God gives us both. Verses 12 and 13 say this. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. So how do we respond to God revealing himself through creation and God revealing himself through his word? How does one respond when they've come face to face with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the sovereign ruler of all creation? Well, we see it in Isaiah 6. After the prophet Isaiah saw God, this is what he said. He said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Usually, after we encounter God, we begin to see ourselves more clearly. All of our pretense, all of our vanity, um, all of our self-righteousness just is stripped away. And we see how much we are in need of him. And we cry out, Lord, save me. Change me. As God reveals himself to us through creation, through his word, we ultimately begin to see our own need for his grace. Our response to God's revealing himself to us should lead us to humility, to vulnerability. Of course, the pinnacle of God's revelation to us, the most, the highest, the most magnificent revelation of God's character, 
his love, his mercy, and his grace to us is Jesus. He's the one to whom all revelation points. As we see the trajectory of the created order pointing us to God, and as we read in the words of scriptures, they are all pointing to the glory of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. He is the one who takes away our sins, and he is the one who makes us innocent and makes us blameless. Because of who he is, because of what he has done, we will praise and we will worship and we will lift up and we will magnify and we will glorify his name both now and forevermore. Amen? Which leads us to talk about worship. Because that's kind of the point of this psalm. Now there's leading a lifestyle of worship where we are mindful to dedicate everything we do to the Lord. I'm not talking so much about that right now. I'm talking about the specific act of worship. Specifically setting aside time to worship the Lord on a regular basis and what we do during that time. So we set aside time to worship the Lord, of course, on on Sunday mornings. I'm talking about that. I'm also talking about private times when we take time out to worship the Lord. So let me explain what I mean. So I think most of you know that before I was in ministry, I was an opera singer. Um, And that when I was in college, I supported myself by doing traditional church music. As a paid soloist or a section leader or conducting a choir. So at one point in grad school, uh, my wife Jackie and I decided we didn't want to do the church gig thing anymore. We actually wanted to find a church that we could worship at. And we eventually landed in a church much like this one, um, just bigger. And I have to admit that it was tough for me. Of course, um, I read music, and I've taught music theory before. But no one had any music for me to read at this church. They just put words on a screen. Anybody relate to that? Um, I was super comfortable singing hymns, um, doing special music, like at Easter, Christmas. We do Bach, we do Handel, some kind of like oratorio or something like that. It's very comfortable with that. Now, these contemporary worship songs at this church we were going to were much simpler and more repetitive. Frankly, I started getting frustrated. I'd think, how many times are we going to sing the same verse over and over and over again? I'm just being real. Or I'd think, is it possible to use more than three or four chords in a song? Also, when I was in a church with traditional people, like traditional worship, doing hymns and organs and that kind of thing, I could always count on people complimenting my singing. 
I mean, I took voice lessons from when I was 17 until I was almost 30. Spent a lot of money to learn how to sing classically. But no one in this church that we were in complimented me on my singing. Like, for one, it was too loud. Nobody could hear me. And two, like, I sound terrible singing this kind of music, contemporary worship music, right? Because I was a trained musician, I had a rough time in worship. I would listen with a very critical ear to things other people didn't hear. Like, that's the wrong chord under that melody. Or um, you could have picked a little bit lower key, like we're all struggling here. Like, come on. You heard your best Matt Redman song, or, or no, Chris Tomlin, he's the guy. And you just pick, you know, go in that key and everybody's like, oh, you know, that kind of thing. But God is good. And since we're talking about God revealing himself, uh, I want to share with you how he revealed himself to me in a way that totally changed how I view worship. So it was back in 2002. I was 30 at the time. One of the small groups that Jackie and I were in was, uh, at the time, was a group of people in their 50s and older. Like, it was the one that worked with our schedule and they welcomed us, so um, we, we, that was our group. So this small group uh, liked to include worship in their meetings. Usually it was right after the discussion and right before prayer. So... Um, it was time for worship, and the leader pulled out her guitar, and she started handing out some sheets with the lyrics, and then she started playing. Chonk, 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 chonk. It was just so square. I mean, like, um, and her singing was very simple, like, like not a trained voice. It was more like a mom singing to her child. But I looked around the room and like everyone was just like worshiping their guts out. Most had their eyes closed. Some had their hands up. Like you you could tell they were really into it. You could see it on their faces. Now I was new to all this. I could sing hymns. I had sung classical solos before. Years of singing opera not just in English, but in French, German, Italian. Um, I was a regional finalist in the Metropolitan Opera National Council auditions. I sang in Orchestra Hall in Chicago, um, where the Chicago Symphony performs. But I'm sitting there in this small group with like 12 people in someone's living room And it seems like everyone's connecting with God and I'm singing along. Mostly I'm just noticing that they seem to have a posture of surrender that I don't have. So I was pretty uncomfortable. And I was sitting there with like all these critical thoughts in my head. And the lady next to me, she's like singing her heart out just worshiping like crazy, her eyes are closed. Like, it was just like her and Jesus. Except she wasn't singing any of the right notes. 
And in terms of just sheer musical quality, it sounded terrible. I was sitting there like totally uncomfortable, just like judging her singing when the Lord spoke to me. I distinctly heard the Lord say this. He said, you need to learn to worship me like her. I was like, it was like one of those, oh God, moments. Reminds me of that passage from Isaiah. Like, I am a sinful man and I have filthy lips, yet I have encountered the Lord. And that began my journey of learning to worship the Lord. It's not a performance. It's about loving him. It's about showing him reverence and awe. It's about surrender to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now I'm talking about worshiping Jesus authentically, which is like the title of this series. Worshiping Jesus authentically can be risky. How's it risky? Well, when we worship, we're taking a risk in three ways. First, we are articulating and we are demonstrating a distinct reality, a reality of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into this world. And we are demonstrating above all else that we have a different authority above the mayor, above the governor, above the president, above all world powers, and that is Jesus. Okay? Secondly, uh, we are taking a risk when we worship by allowing ourselves to be vulnerable before the Lord and before everyone else around us. It can feel very uncomfortable at first being that vulnerable in front of people. Sometimes when we're worshiping, we may weep, we may kneel, we may close our eyes, we may raise our hands, we may move our bodies, we may even dance. David danced before the Lord in worship. You know what his wife called him? Undignified. Remember that story? And this is what he said. This is how he replied. He said, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. He didn't care what anyone thought. His worship was for the Lord and for the Lord alone. Worshiping the Lord is us experiencing the love of our creator and it is us expressing our own love for the creator. Think for a minute about someone that you love very deeply. I'll give you a second. Think about someone you love very deeply. 
Okay, now keep the image of that person in your mind. Now take a moment and allow yourself to feel like the warmth of love that you have for that person. Do you think it's possible to go the rest of your life and not ever express that feeling to that person? Do you think it would ever be possible to fully express the depth of your love that you have to that person? Like, so they knew just how much you loved them. Probably not, but we try. Right? Poets and novelists and songwriters and movie script writers um, have tried for ages to express the depth of love that two people can have for one another. Right? How much more should we express our love for the one who loved us first, our creator, our savior? Even though we may feel vulnerable, we may feel undignified, maybe even humiliated to try to express the depth of love that we have for the Lord. I think it's interesting. Most of us have no problem being demonstrative at a sporting event or like a rock concert. Right? You don't even hesitate. But we can find it difficult to be demonstrative in the presence of the one who loves us more than anything else in the world. No one loves you more than he does. The one who continues to pursue us, even when we're running in the opposite direction. The one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is our Lord and Savior. Right? We take a risk in worship by looking foolish as we express our commitment to the one who has revealed himself to us in a way that often breaks us. For example, let's say you're a husband, a father. You've always been the strong one. And yet in worship, God reveals himself to you in a way that just breaks you. Maybe now you're crying. You're trembling. Sometimes the presence of the Lord is so powerful, like you can't even like stand up anymore. Now you're like self-conscious. You're embarrassed. You're the strong one. What do people think? What do your wife and kids think? I would encourage you to consider this. We are all a fool for something. All of us. I decided many years ago that I'm going to be a fool for Christ. Whose fool are you? Or in the words of David, he says, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. Worshiping the Lord authentically 
is risky. It's risky to name the reality of the kingdom of God. It's risky to publicly recognize the authority of Jesus Christ. It is risky to look undignified and risk being vulnerable and humiliated. One of the things that happens when we take that risk is God begins to do surgery on our heart. Authentic worship opens us up to be transformed by his presence. So pardon my language, but when we cut the crap and we start getting real before the Lord, he's like, okay, that's what I can work with. It's these risks in worship that give it its power. There may come a day when worshiping Jesus will put us at risk of imprisonment or even of being killed. Christians throughout history have had to face this very thing. Like many Christians throughout the world today face this reality. The ancient Hebrews themselves were aware of the risk that they were taking by saying that God alone is worthy of praise. It's these risks in worship that give it its power. So the movement of Psalm 19 goes from the cosmic to the intimately personal. And this is what takes place in worship. We enter into the space of the holy, into the presence of his divine goodness, that which may be indescribable, perhaps overwhelming. And we offer up a sacrifice of praise. We give him our voice. We give him our mind. We give him our heart, our love, our bodies, even our dignity, even our pride. And then we hear a word that's just for us. And it changes us. As we surrender more and more in worship, we learn to experience more of who God is. And we begin to discover who we really are. And it changes us. It frees us to become who God created us to be. In the last verse of Psalm 19, it reflects our desire in worshiping God to allow him to name who we are, to name whose we are, and to remind us again that it is he who is our strength and our salvation. It reads... May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you that you are so patient with us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your loving kindness. Lord, it's my prayer this morning that we at Life Church would be worshipers of the living God, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that we would get real before you and just humbly surrender our whole selves to you. God, your word says in Romans 12 that in view of God's mercy, we should offer our bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you, that this is true and proper worship. Lord, you are worthy of our honor and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.